the sixth, the 15th verse of our chapter. Till the Spirit is poured on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile place. May the words of my lips and the prayers and hopes of all our hearts be acceptable to thee. God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The first word in the chapter 32 that Mark told me to preach on uh, is see, see, see. It isn't just perceiving the ordinary, the externals of things, but asking us really to grasp what things are about. Isaiah is a poet and a mystic. He really wants us to see. Now, Christians don't see different things from ordinary people. We see the same things, or we're mad, but we see them differently. We see them with a vision and an intensity and extraordinary beauty. Scriptures go on after the word see, about those who have eyes to see, let them see, ears to hear, let them hear. And you can hear those as echoes, Jesus repeating those after his parables. Really see. Now, before this present job as an archdeacon, I was a vicar in South London, vicar of Brixton, uh, for 22 years. I went through two riots, nail bombing, was badly knifed. And then Bishop Richard rang me up and said, or would you become an archdeacon? I said, yes. <laughs> he said, you'll want to think and pray about it. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> you'll want to ask your wife. I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but Bishop Richard, you might have to reconsider. I don't like archdeacons. I've never got on with archdeacons. Then there was a rather painful long pause. And because Bishop Richard has the grand manner, <laughs> he said, In that case, Lyle, you can show us how it ought to be done. <laughs> so I wrote a list of the 11 things I didn't like about Archdeacon judgmental, pompous, difficult, and I drew up the opposites. That's my job description. And I went around. The little country mouth across the river, which is your sophisticated city ways from south of the river. And uh, I, at this, I go around preaching. And at this point in the sermon, when I was talking to people, a wonderful glazed look <laughs> came into their eyes. The same glazed look that you all have. And I thought, it must be the wisdom of my words is giving them the inward vision. And then I found out, no, it's just they're trying to figure out what my funny accent is. <laughs> so I've taken you out of your misery. I am a Bostonian, so I have a Bostonian accent. I've got a funny accent, funny job that I've told you. An archdeacon is uh, bishop's curate, you know, uh, bishop's deputy. If you want my job description, 
not my funny way of writing it, but the actual biblical one, Acts 6, the deacon. He had set up for Stephen, it's caring for the church, helping those uh, with uh, finance, caring for the poor, the vulnerable, training. Oh, yes. How does Stephen end? Martyrdom. <laughs> so I've got a funny accent, a funny um, job. And, oh, yes. A funny name. What kind of name is Lyle? Now, if uh, Archdeacon, if it was very easy to remember my name in Brixton, because I had a big church which was full, and they remembered my name very easily. They all called me Father Lyle, very convenient on Father's Day. It was very easy, and I lied not for them to remember, because the vicar before Father Lyle was Father Tate. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to remember me, how did you do? Think of me as half a lot. <laughs> and because I'm supposed to help with finance and buildings, uh, Mark, no doubt, uh, should regard me as sugar daddy. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you're a Bostonian, you must have a Bostonian grandmother. Now, my grandmother was very tiny. And uh, in my mother's life misery with little phrases like, better that I should tell the children than they learn about it on the streets. And my mother's heart sang. We lived on a street which was called Joy Street, and my grandmother was coming up the street, no doubt having been doing good to people. My mother would always say, well, you always know the people your grandmother is doing good to by their haunted, hunted look. As she was going up Joy Street, she walked straight into a lamppost, was knocked down, and there was a nice, kindly policeman saw it, rushed up to help her, very kind, but then he made a fatal mistake. As he was helping up my tiny grandmother, he said to her, Oh, madam, didn't you see the lamppost? grandmother seemed to rise from the ground like a Wagnerian goddess, tower over the policeman and say, young man, of course I saw it. I merely did not realize it. Isaiah the poet, Isaiah in scripture, asks us over and over again, to see the kingdom of God, to see the power of God's spirit. Because if we don't, we end in chaos, disorder, and ultimate destruction. He warned the people of Jerusalem to repent, to form the right relationship with God. He meant hardness of heart. The waves of the Assyrians came, and he who had proclaimed Isaiah, the great covenant of Mount Zion, that God had given his word that there would be the house of David, the temple in its glory, and the Lamb. The three bastions of the Old Testament that would secure the promise of God. But they moved from faith 
to a destructive form of certainty, not in God, but in their own security. You said the hymn or the uh, prayer that you said, you love the world too much and your vision grows dim. For Isaiah, we've been in the temple and seen the holy God and his glory filling the temple, was surrounded by people who extorted the poor, who oppressed, who lived for idolatry and sin, and who proclaimed the truth and virtue of the kingdom. How would it come? Through the righteous ruler, through the Messiah, Thus, in our passage, the word that is so important is until the Spirit is poured out upon us. At that point, the true Messiah comes, the true King. And it doesn't distort the morality, not having the righteous root. All of creation is distorted and twisted. Now, in the passage, Isaiah, the poet, the prophet, is not a misogynist having a go at women. He's a poet who uses the metaphor that uh, in the section about uh, women who are complacent is the metaphor for the daughters of Zion. Those were the people of Israel who were in the wrong relationship, bring destruction. The land becomes infertile, the enemy comes, Consumerism, despair, greed destroys. The daughter of Zion is true. Proclaims her faith. The people of God proclaim their faith. And the Spirit pours down, healing and creating the new kingdom. I have not been in the temple of Jerusalem and exists no more. I have not seen an extraordinary vision of holiness. The only kind of quasi-vision I had was when I was 21, and my parents took me not to the most holy place, Las Vegas, but to, they took me there, not to gamble, I'm proud to say, but to see a German singer. Do you, any of you who are older don't remember, but you may know the name Marlene Dietrich, you know, Lily Marlene, she was an extraordinary woman who so detested racism and fascism that she left her native Germany and committed herself to the Allies, sang for the British forces, the uh, Americans. You know, this is one of her last performances. She was in her 70s. They didn't have a stairway to paradise. They had an enormous stairway, though, going up. And here she appeared in a gold lovely dress, the orchestra playing. She walked down the stairs, everyone screaming with applause. And then she said, I am now going to sing one of your most favorite songs. Wild, insane applause that she built, let go on. <laughs> and then she said, no, not that one. That one comes later. <laughs> Falling in love again, what am I to do? I can't help it. For you and I, the falling in love must be Jesus. The falling in love must be with the King of Kings, the true Messiah who brings order to society. 
society, but creation itself. Marlena Dietrich in the late 40s was asked whether she would ever go back to Germany. Would she ever be able to forgive her own country? And she replied, the Jews can forgive the Germans. I can never forgive the Germans because I am a German. For her, the interdependency, the of belonging to her own people meant that she was able to say this deep point that only the victim can forgive. You and I often say it when uh, we have situations where we've done crazy and foolish things. Uh, forgive and forget. She was saying when terrible things happen, Auschwitz, Rwanda, the killing fields of Cambodia. There are some atrocities in our personal lives and in our global lives that only the victim can forgive. To say to one another when we've done foolish, sinful, and crazy things, I was hurt by you. Our relationship still goes on. That's costly forgiveness. And that's what happened on the cross when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The extraordinary thing is that God the Father entrusted us with a love so great that it tore his heart out as his own child was mangled and twisted on the cross out of love for each one of us. In our passage, we're asked to carefully consider until the spirit is poured out on us. That spirit will create security and peace, the actual wonderful word, shalom. It's the word Jesus uses when he enters in his resurrection into the place where the disciples are gathered for fear. And he says, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, I give unto you. You've read in your study of Isaiah, that vision, those who walk in darkness will see a new light, the true king will come. You've heard the promises of the peaceable kingdom when the lion and the lamb sit together, when the whole of the cosmos is held in those extraordinary hands of Jesus, the hands that heal and create a decent life, a life of the healing of the planet, a life where the marginal and the poor are embraced. In my parish in Brixton, young couple. They'd been uh, moved into London. And of course, they had a little boy between 9 and 11 named George. And of course, they wanted the best, as we all want best for young children growing up. And they wanted uh, him to fit into uh, the school, the community, make friends. 
And at first he seemed to settle very well, would bring lots of uh, kids home with him. And then suddenly he stopped bringing friends. And the father went up to George and said, George, um, have you stopped bringing friends back to the flat because you're embarrassed and ashamed of your mother's uh, uh, disability? Now, his mother had very twisted and distorted hands, uh, scarred and snarled and quite uh, distorted. Little boys shuffle, as little boys do. And um, the father said, George, your mother didn't always have distorted hands. She actually used to have quite beautiful hands. She worked up west in a department store. But when we were living in the country, you were only about six months old. Um, she was working in the kitchen. She heard a terrible scream. She rushed in, and you had fallen into the open fire, and she took you out and put the fire out with her hands. You were in hospital for a day or so. She was in the hospital for six weeks, and with the operations went on for years. George, your mother has distorted hands because she loved you. Little boy shuffled, walked over. End of the week, uh, Dad got back early from uh, work, heard George and a gang of kids coming up the back stairs into the kitchen, and heard the voice of George over saying to his friends, you all must look at my mother's hands. They show how much she loves me. In sign language, the sign for Jesus Christ, I would have guessed that I would have been wrong, would have been the sign of the cross. Now that isn't what in sign language, when you're signing to people who are deaf, the sign for Jesus Christ is. This is the sign. It's the hands, the distorted and wounded hands on the cross that reach out to each one of us to say he loves us. In our passage from Isaiah, we heard the coming king. Not as the Jews had expected in the Old Testament, a monarchical, militarist leader. A king who was to be worshipped in a place where the human heart is broken in love. A king who is to restore to us the land, healed and renewed by streams of water in the desert, when fertility of the twisted places become healed. It's only in looking to Jesus Christ at the cross, the true Messiah, 
that we understand Isaiah's prophecy of that king who comes into the valley of darkness, that king who is and was and ever will be, and the everlasting hands that reach out to embrace us and hold us, the king who kneels down and with those hands washes our feet, the king, the Messiah, the Jesus, the vision of the poet of glory, the humble king who loves us.